Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. I'm really glad you're with me on episode 10 of the Liberty Cafe today. Of course, since it's episode 10, that means it's our 10th anniversary of the cafe. We've been doing this now for 10 weeks. And so as a special anniversary treat, I have Representative Steve Toth. Uh, Steve Toth is a small business owner. He represents South Montgomery County in the Texas House of Representatives. He's first elected to serve back in 2012 and then was re-elected in 2018. He, he serves on the House Appropriations Committee and the, and the Resiliency and Investments uh, subcommittees there, and then also the Culture, Recreation, and Tourism. But I thought what would be really interesting about having him on today, not that the Texas budget isn't interesting, but but particularly he's been sending out this daily COVID-19 updates email for, for months, and they've been a great source of information about what is happening here in Texas. I went back in my emails, and the earliest one I could find was April 2nd. I'm sure he's sending them before then, but I've been fascinated by them, and, it, and I'm sure y'all will also be uh, fascinated by what he has to say to us about this day. So thank you, Representative uh, Toth, for being on the Liberty Cafe. Hey, buddy, it's good to be with you. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you're here. So I, I said the earliest email I could find in my list was a April 2nd, but I'm sure I've lost some of those. When did you start doing this? Towards the end of March. So we sat down with Dr. Hellestead early in early March. I drove to Austin, and we interviewed the executive director of DISHES, Dr. Um, John Hellerstead, and that's when we got all these dire predictions about the sky falling in. And honestly, Bill, we bought into it initially. I mean, I don't, I don't think he was trying to lie. I don't think he was trying to deceive anybody. I don't think there was any grand conspiracy. I think in a, he's a good-hearted guy that believed everything that the IHME and Dr. Um, Neil Ferguson from Imperial College was telling us. And, you know, we just unfortunately... I don't think the United States, nor do I believe Texas, if we were ever we ever took the time to just say, hey, is this right? I mean, before we close down the entire economy, before we throw thousands, millions of people out of work, before we cause tens, if not hundreds of thousands of suicides, before we create mental health issues by isolating people with alcohol and Netflix, is this data really good? Is it really true? Is it really accurate? And so we just wanted to really detail the data every day. And, and uh, that's what me and my staff really drilled down every single day, data. Of course, you represent Montgomery County. And, and in your emails, you start out with information about that, but then you move on to the greater Houston area and then the state. But there must be just tons of information out there. How, how did you decide what information was the best to get into your email? So I wasn't going to get into an argument with people that were, were calling for a, a shutdown. I just wasn't going to do it. And so we were told in Montgomery County, I was, I was told by my, our county judge, we will not do a full shutdown the way, the way Houston has done one. I was told that on Wednesday by our county judge. <laughs> and then Friday morning at 9 o'clock, we announced this universal shutdown that included a, 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 a um, um, you know, everyone off the streets by, uh, by 11 o'clock. And, yeah. and so I called the county judge and I said, what the heck? And he said, well, you, you got to look at the modeling information that they shared with us for the county. And so I, I called, I called uh, a couple guys that serve on, on the hospital district. And we did a conference call with the CEO of the hospital district. And they said, represented by April 24th, 
You're going to have 100,000 people. And this is with the shutdown. You're going to have 100,000 people in the hospital. Or I'm sorry, you're going to have 100,000 cases, my apologies, by April 24th, and you're going to grow at 20,000 cases per day. And you'll have over 10,000 people in the hospital with over 1,000 deaths. Just in Montgomery County? Just in Montgomery County. And I, and I said... I said to Randy, the CEO of the hospital, Randy, I said, where'd you get this modeling? He goes, well, it was shared with us. I said, Randy, I said, <laughs> how many cases do they have in the four-state area, tri-quad-state tri area of, of New York, where you've got New York City, you've got Connecticut, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania? I said, how many cases do you have there right now? And he said, I don't know. I said, ballpark, how many do you have? And at that time, it was only 50,000. I said, you only have 50,000 there right now. That's 29 million people crammed into a 750-square-mile area, which is basically metropolitan Houston. Right. And I said, right here in Montgomery County, you're predicting that we're going to have 100,000 cases. And I said, that is rubbish. And he goes, no, that's what the data is telling us. I said, Randy, I said, what statistical modeling courses did you or any of the doctors from the hospital district take while you all were in med school? He said, none. And I said, I worked for the Harris Poll, and I'm just here to tell you I studied this stuff, and based on the data, based on the assumptions that, that y'all are making, it's impossible, totally impossible. And um, we never came close to it, Bill. I mean, not even close, and, and Harris County never came close to it either. I mean, at the worst um, that things got, they never, they never exceeded 27% of the capacity of their ICUs, intensive care units. They never got to within, they never got to within 22% use of their ventilators. Um, th- this was completely, uh, this was a complete swing and a miss. And we never asked the hard questions about where the data came from, this Neil Ferguson character. And, and yet the goofy thing, and here's the deal. I had a, I had an epidemiologist that sought me out because of my, my emails. And, um, I had a friend who is in, the pharma industry knows an epidemiologist here in Texas. And he said, this guy would like to talk, sending him your, your emails. Steve, he said, look at Neil Ferguson's background and look at the predictions that he's made. In 2005, he predicted 200 million uh, bird flu deaths. And yet over the past 15 years, we've only had 455 deaths, not 200 right. million. Right. In 2009, he predicted 65,000 swine flu deaths. In the U.K. alone, they had 392 and you know what he did? I mean, 500,000 um, deaths in the UK due to COVID. They've had, they're, you know, they're pr- approaching 41,000 and 2 million deaths in the US, right? We're approaching 114,000. And basically 45% of them came from the Northeast part of the United States. He asked me, so why is it we're trusting this modeling information? I said, good question. I agree with you 100%. Why don't we go on? Why don't we do a podcast and talk about it? And he said, no way. And I said, why not? And he, he said, I will, I will be run out of town on a rail. This is groupthink. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a runaway train. And he said, I'm not going to stand in front of it. There's all kinds of things that come out of what you're just talking about. One, one, one thing is that there's, there's a big difference between science and modeling. This isn't the first time we've seen these kind of things where people with models predict all kinds of terrible things out in the future that don't come true. The the most obvious instance I think we see today, of course, along with this is global warming, where we, we see all these models about what the atmosphere is going to do in the future. 
and we base all our policies today on, on what it might look out there based on these models. But that's not real science. Science is looking at data of real-world events that have already happened and then studying those and understanding those. It's, 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 right. quite, it's quite different what we've seen here when it comes to COVID-19. It's amazing. I mean, you've got people say it's all about the data. It's all about the science. They, and so they start the conversation with it's all about the data, it's all about the science, and then they proceed with no data or science to back up anything that they're saying. I mean, it's really, it's really, truly insane. Um, I, you know, I was talking with a guy that he's a fairly good curriculum vitae in this area, and then he talks about the fact that we need 100% mask use. 100% of the population needs to be using masks in order to get through this thing. He said, okay, data, science, where's, where's your data, where's your science? He goes, well, it's common sense. I said, oh, okay, so it's really not about data or science. It's about your, what you deem to be common sense. Why should I listen then to the World Health Organization? Shouldn't I listen to you? Or should I listen to the World Health Organization that last week said, well, people, healthy people should not be wearing masks. That was just one week ago, WHO. Right. It, and, and, and this is not about data. It's not about science. I wish it were. Oh, that we would base this on data and science. We never would have done this. And, you know, this isn't about this isn't about money. This isn't about economics. You, you can replace money. You can replace economics. People will eventually find jobs again. This is about hard numbers of people that are taking their lives. ABC 7 out of the Bay Area, the doctors in that area were all in favor of this shutdown. They all believe that, you know, they believe that this information from Neil Ferguson and his flawed study, they believed it was all real. And they strongly supported this shutdown. Well, now they're strongly encouraging the governor to open California up and the rest of the United States because they've seen more suicides in April than they saw in the prior year. Wow. One of the interesting stats that, that you show in your email, like today's email showed that there have been 1,830 deaths in Texas. And then you point out that 48% of those are from long-term care facilities, and that doesn't even include all senior communities. No, it doesn't. So it's 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 point zero six two percent of the population. This this may be a little bit too detailed, but that's what it is. You're looking at basically you're looking at skilled nursing facilities that are licensed by the state of Texas, and you're also looking at nursing homes that are uh, that. Um, no, I'm sorry, nursing homes that are run by the state of Texas, skilled nursing facilities, long-term care facilities that are run by Texas. That's point zero six two. I'm sorry. 0.62, but it doesn't include any of the it doesn't include any of the private private long term care facilities, assisted living facilities. Like the vast majority of the deaths that we've had here in Montgomery County came from a place called the Conservatory. That places like the Conservatory, these private you know homes, um, assisted living facilities are not included in that number. So so it, it looks like I mean what you're saying somewhere around one percent of the population has accountable for more than 50% of the deaths. That's basically what you're saying. So that that would indicate that yeah. that along with the the World Health Organization recently coming out about the mask and about the that it's not easy to spread this if you're asymptomatic that that maybe this whole shutdown thing is maybe a little too much at least in a lot of places. Yeah, but you know, yeah, Bill, but the hard part of this is that the five hardest words that you're ever going to get out of a politician or an elected official is, I'm sorry, I was wrong. <laughs> right? No one's ever going to admit that. Instead, these guys are saying, <clears throat> instead what they're saying is, 
Well, it would have been 2 million deaths if we hadn't done what we did. Rather than just saying, wow, we're, you know, we, we trusted this modeling information <clears throat> from Do- Dr. Ferguson. We're sorry we were wrong. No one wants to admit that. And my fear is that if you're unwilling to admit that you were wrong, if you're unwilling to admit that the modeling was bad, right? then if this thing comes back in the fall, you're going to do this to us all over again. And I'm just here to tell you, it's going to be pitchforks and torches and guns. You are not, we are not going to get, we're not going to be able to do this again. Hell no. I think it'll be tough. The The, the whole population was sort of duped by all this in, in one sense. I mean, everybody gets scared when they see all these numbers. And I think a lot of us have decided that maybe this really, we didn't need all this. Maybe you needed to shut down New York City. Um, maybe you, you certainly didn't need to put COVID-19 positive people in the New York State nursing homes. I think we can all agree with that, well, I- right? They did it in Massachusetts, too, right? And so if you look at some of the highest, the biggest hotspots in the United States, it's where they took COVID patients that were recovering from COVID that were still positive, that were still shedding, and they put them in in these long-term care facilities with the most vulnerable people. Who does that? How, how, How incredibly insane is that? If what we should have done, rather than a universal lockdown, we should have done a targeted, isolated lockdown where we said, Let's take, let's take the people that are most susceptible, the elderly, and those that have some kind of pre-existing condition, whether you're pre-diabetic, diabetic one or two, type one or two, and we say, you guys isolate. And then what we will do is we will continue to work. We will continue to keep our jobs. We will continue to um, keep people active and, and healthy that, that are predisposed to psychosocial issues. Um, like isolation and how destructive and dangerous that could be to somebody that has some kind of underlying mental health condition that you don't know about until you take away their job and isolate them. Exactly. Right. You know, you know, if somebody has a pre-existing condition that that makes them susceptible to COVID death by the fact that they're type one or type two diabetic um, or elderly, um, but a psychosocial condition you don't know until you take someone's job away, until you isolate them, until they've lost their job, until they've lost their business, to know whether or not they're suicidal. You don't know this. And yet we should have, we should have just taken those that were vulnerable, and, and if they agreed to it, isolate them, fortify their position, and then sustain them with medical help and food and whatever they need. Right, this, this it would have burned through our—go ahead. Well, this, this one-size-fits-all— just just hasn't worked out very well and and so your district is is kind of basically right there on the border between urban texas and rural texas your district montgomery yeah, county it, yeah i mean we're 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 a bedroom community or suburban community i'd like to say a, a bedroom community to houston but actually we're not we um we we actually we actually during the day have more people in in the woodlands than than we have at night Right. We're, we're actually what's considered a reverse commute community. Oh well, that's great. So, have you noticed how is how have the folks in your district responded to the whole COVID nineteen and particularly the shutdown? Have you seen that? Is it different in in your district or parts of your district than elsewhere? You know, I I think it's pretty similar here. Um, in in respect to the attitudes, is that what you're asking about? Yeah. Did, did are they did they are they more compliant, if you will, with the shutdown or, or more resistant to it? People here, um, it, it's funny, you know, it's 
you're having a debate. Some debate is based on danger and some debate is based on fear. And and there's such a difference between danger and fear, right? If if the issue is about danger and do I or don't I go out to a restaurant, you you weigh the danger compared to other dangerous things as to whether or not it's going to influence your behavior. But when it's based on fear, fear is not rational. And and um, so you're not making a decision based on analytics. You're you're basing it on fear. And that's just the way that deal works. And and that's even today, like I'll put data in front of people and just say, you know, let's let's look at this. You know, we're, we're going to sustain twice as many flu deaths in the state of Texas, which accounts for about two percent of the deaths nationwide. We will sustain more flu deaths in a, in a typical flu season than we do COVID deaths. Do you think that this experience with with COVID nineteen will shape us in some positive ways as far as individuals making decisions about how to deal with things like the flu? Because in in the past, people really haven't paid too much attention to it. Do you think they'll pay a little bit more attention to to things like the flu today? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I think you know something positive is that I think people are going to be more careful when it comes to flu season about making sure that they keep their hands clean. They, you're probably not going to see as many hugs and kisses at church. <laughs> uh, people right. will be more careful, and I, th- I think that's a really that's a good thing. But here's my fear too, though, is that you know the next time we say the sky is falling, uh, people are going to come out of this as armchair quarterbacks, and they're going to come out of this six months to a year from now. And when there's no big second wave this fall, people are going to come out of this and say, you know, I believe the government, and they, damn it, they con me. I mean. It would have been nice for them to admit that they were wrong rather than continuing to try and scare the heck out of us. And and so my fear is that if we have a Spanish flu like we had in 1918, where hundreds of thousands of people were killed as a result of it, I do fear, I really fear that people aren't going to respond to us. And that would be a really bad thing. We need We need good critical modeling, and we need to be willing – to, to look critically at the modeling and make sure it's accurate rather than just rolling over and saying, okay. And I think we rolled over and listened to it simply because we were more, concer- we were more concerned in, in, in uh, government about what the polling was telling us and the attitudes of the American people rather than really what the data was telling us. I mean, this, is, this guy put this model together on, you know, an AS400 IBM from the 70s, uh, and it was based on... <laughs> It was based on Fortran um, uh, computer language, uh, um, COBOL. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's something that people learned in 1975, you know. And, and, and the funny thing is that th- there were tens of thousands of lines of data, or, or tens of thousands of lines of coding in, in this model that were faulty. And, and people, people tried to, to use Dr. Ferguson's model and every time they did it, they came up with different numbers, even though they were using the same the same assumptions. Uh, and when they put the model together, each time it came out with different um, different numbers. It's it's flawed. It's grossly flawed. Well, it's, and uh, yet we continue to listen to it. That that is a bit scary. But on, on the other hand, I mean, you're a conservative, liberty minded person. I mean, there there is something positive to having. Uh, people having a, a healthy skepticism of what government is telling you. Oh, man, sure is. Well, so if—go I mean, ahead. We're taught by the founders. You know, here's the strange thing is that 
the hotbed for questioning government authority, it used to come from the left. You know, it, <laughs> don't trust anyone over 40. <laughs> that was, uh, you're too young to remember that, but, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, that was the mantra of the left. Don't trust anyone over and don't trust the government. And that was a foundational truth that our, our, our founding fathers, not don't trust anyone over 40, but don't trust the government. There should be a healthy distrust of a consolidation of power and authority. And um, that's why we're a constitutional republic. And, and yet today the left is all about, well, whatever, the, whatever government tells us we should do and we should. Well, bef- I'd love talking about this and we could go on about it all day. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, another aspect of the COVID-19, and that's the, the lockdowns effects on the state budget. You're on the state appropriations committee and, and y'all, it looks like y'all are going to have a challenge ahead of you when you come back into session in 2021. So I'd like to ask you about the leadership actions recently. They asked state agencies to submit plans for 5% savings on that. But but when they did that, they actually exempted about three quarters of the budget from that 5% savings. And so I ran a little math and it looks like they might get about $1.6 billion out of this out of this effort. That's about yeah. what they got back in 2010, last time they did. Is that going to be enough? No, it's not. So when they did this in the 82nd legislative session, um, Brandon Creighton, Senate District 4, was a House member at that time in HD 16, and he was on appropriations, and they actually they actually cut the budget by 15%. That's that's not an accrual cut. That's that's a cash cut. They cut it. They cut the budget by 15%. They did a lot of heavy lifting. They went to zero-based budgeting, and I I think that this is going to be a much more difficult period. Um, I mean, we came out of that that out of that 2008-2009 um, economic downturn, and Texas really led the way out of that downturn, creating jobs in the states. Right. Um, but, you know, we're hobbled right now with cheap oil and a, and a price war that's going on between the Saudis and the Russians. And so our foundational strength of oil and gas is just not it's not going to. And, uh, and while we are maybe more diversified than we were back then, um, there also isn't going to be necess- the purchasing power of the rest of the of the of the rest of the United States on our agribusiness there was back then as well. So I, I just I think this is going to be worse, and I think that we need to plan for a minimum of a 15% cut out of the out of this budget right now that we're in right now. So we're in the 86 um, budget, and we we should now be looking at making some hard cuts, much more than 5%. Well, of course, you're in this budget now, and it's and this budget was a massive increase over the last budget. So you're not only facing with just kind of normal growth, but, but spending grew a lot this time. Now, part of that was uh, spending for uh, Harvey. And so hopefully that, that spending will go away, but it still leaves you in, in a tough situation. Yeah, it, and it's a hard thing, right? So I think we've, um, I don't have my numbers right. Basically, uh, um, if you take all the money that we spent for Harvey, about three times that amount is going to be refunded to us by the federal government. So it, it, you kind of have to look at it like, well, we, we had to do what we had to do to help business and individuals that were, you know, that were rocked by Harvey. And we're going to get, we got that money back from the federal. So you, you kind of have to place that aside and say that that was really federal spending. It didn't come out of the state coffers. It, at the end of the day, it all comes out of our pocket, right? Whether it's state or federal money, That's it right. all comes out of our pocket. But, um, if you take that money out, it lo- really it looks more like about a four um, percent spending increase over the prior biennium. It's uh, 
it's still a ton of money. It's still a ton of money. And, you know, you're, of course, like I said, you're on appropriations and you're on there with, uh, I think, another stalwart conservative representative, Matt Schaefer. And, and it's great having both of you guys on there. But I'd like to ask you a question about that, that, you know, sure. o- over the years, I've, I've watched the appropriations process pretty closely. And it, and it seems like some appropriators believe that their job is to appropriate. So the more money they appropriate, the better job <laughs> they are doing. You know, and I saw that with, I had a former boss who was in the Texas House and then went to the U.S. Congress and it seemed to me, and got on the Appropriations Committee, and it seemed to me that over time he lost his fiscal conservatism, which was really strong when he was down there. Do you, do you, do you think that you and Matt and others can remain fiscal conservatives for long on the Appropriations Committee? I'll, I'll tell you what um, the litmus is, someone that's going to lose their way, is, is when they quit speaking out um, about what's wrong with the process, when um, it, it's you start committing intellectual suicide and you can't admit to yourself that you're doing the wrong thing. You, you can remain part of the, but if you can't even if you can't even admit the wrong, then eventually your actions are going to catch up with, you know what I mean? If you can't say, hey, this is wrong, and you're criticized, you're you're told you're told by people, hey man, you're a lawmaker now, you're in the legislature, you're not an activist, or you got to quit the criticism, and so you're like, oh okay, all right, so I'm not going to criticize anymore. I can't criticize anything. And once you're criticizing, you're in effect committing a form of intellectual suicide. And it's then that, you know, it's then that you start voting the wrong way. So that's, I don't know if that makes any sense, Bill. But, it makes a lot of um, sense. And I, yeah, think that's, so. I think that's one of the things that, that I've appreciated about your your conversation on COVID-19 and even your email. You, you've come out with what I thought was constructive criticism. Sometimes it was just the data. But the data spoke for itself in a way as criticism, and then you've also spoken about it. And I, and I think, to your point, you know, for all Texas leaders, we'll, we'll be seeing whether or not they'll be willing to admit that some things were done wrong on this wave of COVID if, if that kind of pops back up again with COVID or Spanish flu or whatever it might be in the future. Yeah, um, we've, we've just got to be honest about it. And you know, I, I so for me, I'm trying to find a balance of speaking the truth without sticking my finger in anybody's eye and um, just to keep the discussion alive. Yeah, I think you've done a good job. Although I would say that, that sometimes some people might need a finger or two in their eyes along the way, but that's a, a, <laughs> a topic for a, another day. So, well, well, Representative Toth, I really appreciate you being on the Liberty Cafe today. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for what you're doing. And thanks to all of you for joining us on the Liberty Cafe today. 